and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is Laura Dockrell, who is an award-winning writer from Brixton, South London. This interview is slightly different this week, and we discussed how she suffered severe postpartum depression after the birth of her son, and how she ended up in a psychiatric ward. But now Laura is nearly three years sober, and has completely turned her whole life around. Laura's first novel for adults, I Love You, I Love You, I Love You, publishes in 2024. I'm going to be taking a short break after next week's episode, but we'll be back in August with some exciting news. And if you love my podcast, don't forget to vote for me to win at the British Podcast Awards. The link will be in the show notes and on my bio on Instagram at Sober Dave. I really hope you enjoy the show and thanks again for all your support. So, hello, Laura. Welcome to my show, One for the Road. It's a real, real joy to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I just jumped off my peloton, so I'm feeling buzzy. Oh, good. Lincoln Park. Oh, amazing. I I, uh, had a peloton and I did a charity thing for Alcohol Change UK. And I said that I would do um, 600 miles in a month. And some days it was easier than others. But when I, back then I was in the carpet game and one night I got in at eight o'clock and I thought I've got to do my 20 miles on the peloton, which was really difficult, but I did did it. it. Yeah, I did it. And I raised lots of money for them, which was great. How did you choose what you were going to do? Did you stack all your classes up and then go through? I didn't do classes. I just free, free run it. So I had headphones on. Yeah, rogue, big time. You went off piece. <laughs> I need them. I need to see my friend. I bumped into one of my Peloton instructors in real life the other day in the Did street. Did you? Like a surreal, my friend who doesn't get it, he was just like, "I don't. What is going on here?" I was like, "Wow, don't understand." It's an odd relationship you create because you feel you're like you're in the room with them, don't you? Totally, right? Yeah, totally. yeah. Oh, great. Well, that's a good start to the day, <laughs> and then you've got this. So, um, you've got a fascinating story. Anyway, Laura, and we'll crack on with that a bit later, but I just wanted to sort of start with me always being nosy and finding out about what it was like for you growing up and where you grew up. And Totally. Yeah, so I grew up in South London in Brixton um, in a, a small flat with brother and sister. I was the eldest. Um, I saw this thing yesterday that said some of the best men in the world are older sisters. And I was uh, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Um chaotic incredible artistic parents where um alcohol was normalized not not um not in any way kind of abused but um definitely it was you know friends would always come back for afters at ours I was used to that doing performances I loved it I had punk free spirit parents 
not in any danger, but just very creative, very bohemian. Some days work the next day, some days not, um, not much routine. And I enjoyed, I learned how to like call my first Stella, you know, I knew how to tilt a glass age four. So, and that was very much of my like understanding of what, you know, my parents of music, poetry, books, art, culture. So that was kind of what I grew up with. So drinking was to me a part of identity of like, you just do, you don't get smashed, but you do drink. Is it four years old pouring the first Stella? Probably something like that, yeah. Wow. My dad always, you know, I'd, and he wouldn't be drunk. He'd just have a couple of, you know, we'd watch The Simpsons all together on a Friday night and he'd have a couple of beers. And I, I took pride in pouring his pint for him, yeah. and his, his snacks, and I liked that. It wasn't a weird thing to me, but I definitely, um, I thought as the older I got in my teens, 20s, if somebody didn't drink, uh, I thought that was odd. Mm. But I will say, actually, credit to my parents, I never really, and all my friends would probably vouch for this, got obliterated because it was so normalised in my household. My friends that hadn't been near alcohol were the ones that, age 14, you know, we're calling ambulances for them, we're scared, they're getting their stomachs pumped, or parents having to come. It was never a secret. So I didn't have to smuggle alcohol to parties or anything. My mum would be like, I'll buy you four Bacardi Breezers. Yeah. To the party. Yeah. Actually, I think there was a kind of balance there where it was healthy because it was spoken about and we could drink in front of my mum. So I never snuck around. Yeah, I get that. I I hear all different kind of stories. I mean, like, I tried to hide it from my son the best I could. And I remember one night I had to pick him up from a party and I was dreading it. I was thinking, God, is he going to be actually? actually really really drunk and out of all of them he wasn't he was quite coherent yet the others were falling all over the place yeah. you know, and I was really proud of him well done for not falling over the place no but it's true I think my my house was the party house especially when we moved out of Brixton we moved into a kind of have you seen a series of unfortunate events with Jimmy no. we're basically Count Olaf's kind of wonky dilapidated house not you know no electricity no it was just mad no hot water and that was a party house, you know, but again, it was all above board. It felt very safe because it was, you have two beers and the novelty's off, you know, and you're yeah. just kids. So I would say actually it was a, it was a healthy balance. And my brother, my sister and I, my brother and sister are not sober, but they aren't fussed by alcohol. They could take it or leave it. So it's the same for all three of us. Um, we have addiction in my family as well so my mum's always been when it comes to other stuff beyond alcohol it's just when none of us are phased so moving on then uh I read along the lines that you uh went to the Brit school right which was in Croydon where I was born were you yeah I was born in Croydon yeah yeah I love Croydon like I'm proud of it I mean there are some better places than not but there's great (laughs) people that come out of Croydon there are there are my sister's around that area as well now and it's so I mean that school is so special but now even still they're like parakeets you know the Mm. school kids are like parakeets in this area and imagine that when I went there so I was 16 years old so it's like even more you know further back like just quite how you know it's just incredible. Everyone can dress exactly how they want. There's no real sense of gangs or, you know, identity crews. Like everyone is just an individual. And that was just quite radical, really, for its time. It was an absolute pleasure to go there. I've met some of the greatest people in my life going to that place. Yeah. Is that right? You went there with Adele? 
I went over Dell. Yeah, loads of my very good friends come from there. And I still meet incredible people yeah. from yeah. Brit School now. I know. It's a great school, and I've been there, actually, and seen some shows of people that go there. What led you to get to the Brit School then? Was you in, like, arts? And- yes. Yeah, so, as I said, came from a very encouraging family uh, of all that stuff and always wanted to tell stories ever since I was young, but thought the only way really to do that was through acting because all the plays I ever read were by old dead men so I was like oh there's not you can't really be it's hard to be a writer anyway let alone be a female writer what had actually happened at my school before that there was a Steiner school behind with a fence and sheep and about 16 kids and um we all of us at my current school before Brit school fancied this one guy and and um I happened to recognize um a girl from my primary school there and I was like Oi, oi, Emma, Emma, is it you? She's like, yeah, yeah, it's me. And she was like, I'm leaving this place. I'm going to Brit school. This is over the fence. She like wrote it down on a scribble of paper. And then I went home to my mum. Like, could you imagine with a script going, I'm going to this school. It's called the Brit uh. school. She was like, yeah, whatever. The school's only like 10 years old at this point. Mm. My mum was like, if you apply, you do it all yourself, the whole application form, get your passport pictures, whatever, thinking you'll never do it. We can go and look around it. And I did it. And um, yeah, I, I got in. That school was so amazing because I, I wasn't, I still am not an academic, which is funny to me because being in the literary world, people assume automatically that you always have a fountain pen on you, that you know every word in the English language and, you know, you're a scholar sort of thing. And I I always think of English as an art subject, not as an academic subject. So to me, it, it was really frustrating that I would be judged on my grammar and my uh, vocabulary rather than getting a story or a feeling across mm. um, but that school really listens to my voice when I said what I, I want to write they would print out little tickets for me and let me put on shows and help you know the tech tech would do stages and costume it was just unlike anything I've ever experienced and actually gave me a false sense of what the world outside was going to be like I thought you could just step up to somebody and go can we do this yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's a great place. Um, and was there much boozing going on in those days, or was that again quite moderate for you? That's I've never even really thought about that. I suppose there was because a lot of the kids that came to Brit School would stay in the local area in kind of a university feel. So even at sixteen, they would stay with families. But we didn't have much money. Nobody had money. And alcohol is expensive. We did have a local pub that would kind of probably let us in underage, and that was that. But I think there's a, a there is a relationship with arts, isn't there? Like literature, theatre, music that goes hand in hand with boozing. But again, I think when most of you were gagging for that two minutes on stage to read your poem or whatever it is, adrenaline just burns alcohol right off, and you're kind of more. We were more focused on. So I say, yeah, they're probably, but not out of ordinary no I don't feel like I was exposed but more in the music you know my friends that went more into music that is really heavily more abused especially in the indie world where it's kind of seen to be it's cool to be a rock star and go along with all the that whole side of it well I've had a few on my podcast in the music world um and it's becoming more and more normal now not to drink in that industry which is really great it's it's leaping ahead actually yeah i i and i i had someone who's a tour manager called andy franks uh and he developed this 
charity called Music Support for Musicians and Artists with Addiction Problems. And it's great. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, and I quite often send people there and they got chat lines or whatever. So, yeah, that's changing, I think, the the narrative around that industry, you know. So that's useful. But when you left Brit School, what happened then? Uh, What happened then? That was tough because all my friends were, um, quite a few of my friends had popped off in music. Another few, few of my friends had all got into drama school and I didn't want to be an actor. I wasn't a musician. And I felt a bit displaced because, um, and, and then frustrated because English, as I said, was kind of seen as this academic subject. I thought, well, where do I go to, to write? I ended up doing a creative writing course at Middlesex University, which I wasn't, I still lived at home. I wasn't into the whole uni, student union, two quid a pint, sort of, that wasn't really for me. And I, um, but I did start doing open mics, reading my work live in a kind of, it was poetry at this like um, monologue meets poetry so a combination of all the stuff I'd learned at Brit school which kind of ended up a bit like Lady Gaga meets Mother Goose (laughs) together in these kind of one was a fake fan letter to Rolf Harris which now as a children's author I immensely regret Um, and (laughs) I would read them in pubs um, festivals libraries anywhere that would would take me but again the the idea of performing of reading of meeting people driven by food as well more than alcohol I don't think again it it got to the point where it was definitely around it but you know again my dad would come down for a couple of pints we'd have a couple of drinks together and that would be it it was that but I'd be lying if I said there wasn't moments where you take it too far you know someone buys you a drink someone buys you a drink you have a shot it turns into that you're having a late night you go to the next place and the next day I always knew and it felt frazzly when uh when that kind of excitement and thrill of a night going well or or anything you know goes that takes that away it taints it if you if you drink too much and that would always make me feel if I was honest with myself a bit crap I think I would sometimes pretend that I was fine about it I think mm. probably come across that quite a lot where you would be in denial that you had a problem with oh no it was fun it was fun it was fun but actually if you were honest with yourself yeah you felt, you felt shit you didn't feel good about it and it's hard to um admit that yeah you palm it off as oh well it was a great night you justify it don't you totally or oh, it wasn't that bad I actually didn't drink that much I remember that when you really didn't really and I think there's probably lots of nights out like that I mean back then for me at that age I, I never ever thought I had a problem with drinking ever really I just it was something you did with your mates totally totally and I think for me it was when I started to notice in the pub people were saying to me oh you're pissed again Dave and they started commenting that I then retreated and started drinking indoors that was the switch for me where I thought oh my god I'm embarrassing myself I'm looking a bit crap and that so I will moderate in the pub and then I will finish it off at home and that was the switch for me that made all the difference, do you know what I mean? And then I ended up spending 10 years living on my own, drinking on my own, never going to the pub. It it was a huge leap. But for you, it sounds like you had a different relationship with alcohol. Yeah, I think, though, it did certainly, it does creep up on you. Mm. I'd be lying if I said that there weren't times where things, ha- things happen, don't you, where you go, oh, actually, a gin and tonic is this much at a pub. But buying a whole bottle of gin and on it separately from the supermarket and watching Stranger Things on my own is actually much more 
cost effective. It's chill. Before you know it, your glasses are, you know, your your measurements are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and your glasses are getting bigger. And I mean, yeah, I would say towards my like late 20s, it was probably a little bit more. You know what, when I think I, the moment for me when I noticed it was a problem was when I would find myself planning my week around drinking. So I'd be like, but I'm seeing that person on Monday and we always drink. And then Tuesday, well, that, but then I'm going to want to drink. So I can't do that exercise class on Wednesday because I'll probably be hungover. And then, but, and then when I was like, this is strange because I'm now planning this like it's kind of writing time, which is precious to me, or, or a relationship that I want to keep positive and up, like how someone might with their religion or their whatever they do, learning a language. Your life is fitting around your drinking, isn't it? It's like turns around the full circle. And then even like people say to me about their weekend drinking or when you've got the next day off, you go, oh, I can drink a bit more because we've got tomorrow off. But what you're doing is basically sacking off your day off to be completely a waste of time. Well, it's also normalised, isn't it? I've got friends now who, because I don't drink, who now will go, oh, I'm seeing Laura on this day, so I won't drink with her, you know, and I'm now their night of immunity. But that is where I feel sad because I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a normalised habit. It's not that if, if it was that, oh, we ended up having champagne and that was an experience, my one twinkling night out of 365 days a week that I tried this new thing. But it's not. It's like a addiction that you don't even realise you're giving into. And I know it, I know it's an addiction because now I'm addicted to buddy coffee. How has that happened? <laughs> well, that, that's a brain altering drug and all caffeine, isn't it? Here you I know? am, just needing, like, seeing the sign coffee and feeling like this kind of um, comfort from seeing yeah. the word coffee written on the wall. And I'm like, oh, coffee. Yeah, I know. Like, I know. Never even cared about coffee four years ago. Well, uh, Laura, it's a work in progress. Right? So, work in progress. Give myself a break. <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> you know. But so you met Hugo, who's um, in the Maccabees, great yeah, band of Maccabees. Yeah, he's um, well, we've been friends since we were 14. So when I was talking about all those friends that went off and did their music, he was one of them. And he's definitely somebody who over the years I've seen, you know, definitely use booze as a crutch. But he's in a world where it is expected, celebrated. In fact, you're a bit of a party pooper if you're on stage and you're not. Mm. He uses beer as hair gel. <laughs> he pulls it into his hands before he goes on stage and looks like, you know, he'll just use it. And that's that he would be seen, I think, by his audience as like a bit of a party pooper if he wasn't having a beer on stage. It's kind of part of his job. Well, did you see the interview with Matt Willis on the telly the I, other night? After you know? he spoke, yeah, I went and checked it out. I thought yeah. it was so powerful. I thought it was amazing. Really powerful and how... Uh... You could see how it had taken Emma down. Do you know what I mean? Being a partner of someone and that, and it, you know, that's the reality of it, isn't it? And he was going to go back on tour, and she was literally almost devastated by that because of the fear of relapse again. You know, so people like Matt can be a huge example in the music world. You know, and you know, I've I've interviewed Cher Adelican from the Gorillas. You know, he's a great man and he's sober and lots of people. You know, so hopefully, bit by bit, these conversations can help, right? Definitely. So, I mean, when I um, when I when I met up again with Hugo in our thirties, because we had some time apart, he was sober. He hadn't drunk for three or four years on tour, and I remember my first response to that was, "What happened?" I went, "What happened?" And he was like, 
he was like shocked. He was like, what do you mean what happened? Just stop drinking. I'm so annoyed. I, you know, I'm shocked at myself now because if someone asked me that now, I'd be like, nothing. Yeah. But that, that was my kind of reaction to it, especially in the industries he's in. Gabor Mate's one of his oh, phrases yeah. is um, not why the addiction, why the pain. Oh, no. You know, uh, and a lot of it's big T's, little T's, trauma. You know, and sometimes when, when people come to me for help and I break it down, they say, I've got no t- trauma at all in my life. And that and when we break it down, there's lots of bits peppered in that could lead to the reasons why we blunt our feelings and that, you know. So, okay, moving on, this is where we get to the bit that's fascinating when you gave birth, right? Mm, fascinating, I guess. <laughs> well, from my perspective, because <laughs> to be honest, this is why these conversations were important because I hadn't really heard of it. And when I started exploring it, it was like, oh, my God, this is, like, unbelievable. Yeah. So I – yeah, it is unbelievable, really. So I was 31. This is 2018. And I gave birth for the first time with Hugo to our little boy, Jet. Had a very traumatic labour where everything that could have gone wrong pretty much did apart from the worst worst case scenario but pretty bad um and I was two weeks overdue I had a healthy normal pregnancy I've had no previous experience of mental health if anything I'm a boring goody goody um and a week after he was born we spent a week in the maternity ward which was hell on earth to anybody that's experienced that you'll know what I'm talking about the maternity wards are crazy um and then a week after be after he was born, I started experiencing symptoms of well, um, what I was going through was postpartum psychosis, which is a severe medical emergency. One in one thousand women experience it. Its symptoms are um, delusions, racing thoughts, suicidal thoughts, hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, um, and then I ended up in a psychiatric ward separated from him for uh, three weeks. We were separated, so two weeks in the ward and then one week at home. And it just completely turned my life upside down. I've never experienced anything like it. This is why I say it's fascinating, right? Because I cannot imagine how that must have been. Do you, do you remember anything about the birth? Do you remember after? Actually, this behind me, this is the um, Chinese cover of the book um what have I done so I wrote about it um I remember it all and I think there is kind of two ways you can go I think I've met people that have gone the way where it's all a blur and they've kind of I guess a bit like being drunk and actually that comes up a lot people say it's like being drunk I I would describe it more as a really awful hangover where you remember everything you know those kind of hangovers where your brain is like crackling and fizzing and all the if you were to walk back through a scene where you were really anxious or embarrassing or drunk and you know like the fire extinguisher is so close because your brain was working so hard revisiting the psychiatric ward was like that again for me uh so I remember it all I remember everything and that's why writing is so powerful because I was able to process it and the best of my ability try and mark down what what was reality what was a delusion what was my mind playing tricks on me I've never had a suicidal day in my life until that point. And then I think the the uh, this kind of sensationalised idea of what it's like to have a baby, that you'll be glowing, that you'll be the happiest you've ever been, it will be the best day of your life. Chatting to you, Dave, this is a better day for me. This is a much better day than having my baby because that was just scary and out of body. 
you know. And Do you mind was- sharing that bit from when you gave birth to Jet to the moment you was taken into the psychiatric ward? What was that like for you? Um, okay, so I think the first thing I felt, which actually does come back to, to booze, I suppose in a way, because it was lack of control. Uh, I became such a passenger in my birth. So I was very much... I mean, being a big sister, I think I, I have like a kind of chronic people pleaser thing anyway, as you say, working progress. I would be like, have you eaten? Have you had a salad? Have you had a break? Oh, you've been on a long time. You know, forgetting completely about myself and what I was going through. We're just going to shove this up you now. Are you OK with that? And me being like, yeah, like yeah. I don't, I've never given birth before. I don't know what to expect. Um, and then the only time my kind of agency kicked in, I was able to go this is too much was when I started noticing that Jet wasn't happy. So the meconium, which is when they poo inside you, he he's basically in short, when my blood pressure was creeping up, his was going down. So he was essentially dipping under and then he was losing strength to kind of get his heart back up again. So I just called an emergency cesarean after hours of this really weird, I, I, I don't even want to know what would probably have happened if, if I hadn't have stepped in and made that call. But then already, very quickly, darts in my mind were there like, you've let him down. How did you not spot that he was, he was basically shrinking inside me? My placenta had failed, so he wasn't getting any nutrients at all. I, I thought he'd be this prized pumpkin and he was really underweight. He was under five pounds. And you could see where his skin had once been chubby and then had like shrunk. So that was just um, already, you're, you know, you're, you've let him down. You're not a good mom you couldn't even carry him properly how could you you know how could you not spot the signs I don't prescribe blame to the NHS but they're so over uh, understaffed and overworked there was not one I was so up for the experience of having a cheerleader and doing it together you know me and this woman you know pushing it out and it just never happened it's just sorry I'm finished now I'm finished now next person next person nobody to grab to nobody to tell me it would be okay um the maternity ward it's temperature I cannot describe how hot it is to you I had this rare side of the epidural where you scratch so I was scratching till I was bleeding I'm a vegetarian I was eating chicken like a viking I was like king away with my teeth drinking water by a jug had this cesarean so I couldn't move the milk can be delayed if you have a cesarean so no milk to feed this starving baby that hadn't been fed for like two weeks inside me you can't sleep because the baby's just constantly crying and you're not allowed to sleep with them on you because of the kind of hard lino hospital floor it was just torture and it nobody was going to me there's going to be an end point if I'd had a serious operation now I would go and rest you know I would be like Hugo you need to take the baby and I need to rest you're just straight onto it mm. and um I sort of thought that at home things would improve you know home became like when we get back everything will be normal and that's when things just went to a whole whole new place the you know, I started thinking that the teddy bears were filming me with CCTV. I could hear voices in the radio. And at first, I mean, I just want to, I'm so proud of that person because I held on to reality so much. You know, I would do all the things, you know, I would ignore, trying to ignore the movies, the sensationalized version that you see in the movies of what somebody with a mental illness looks like. I wasn't like, <laughs> hello, crazy. You know, I was really trying, trying to grab, have a grasp, grasp of reality. I didn't want to die because I knew life was so brilliant. I'd lived 30 years on the planet, thank you very much, and and always managed to squeeze the lemonade out of every lemon I could see. But now there wasn't any. So I didn't want to want to die, but I couldn't be alive because I was in so much pain that nobody else could see. 
And that's when the suicidal thoughts crept in. And it, to say to somebody, I wouldn't have lasted the weekend, to somebody that doesn't understand suicidal thoughts or what serious mental illness looks like, is a bit like, well, you're breathing, aren't you? Your heart's beating. Can't you just last the weekend? What's the problem? Yeah. When you're going in that, I was just, I was psychologically weightlifting, you know, and I was tired. I couldn't do it anymore. And I couldn't see my little boy already see me being that sick. You know, that was just, I was just like, this isn't me. This isn't what I'm like, you know. Uh, so then the psychiatric ward was just a whole, everyone should spend time in a psychiatric ward. It's the most humbling, eye-opening, incredible experience where how dare I ever before, you know, I just want to say tears are on the edge. Like I could really go for it because it's so speaking about not just how hard and weird and strange and scary it all was, but also how humbled and privileged I feel to have made it through and to have had that experience, be able to talk about it. I feel so grateful for for it. I'm grateful to my illness and so proud of everybody in the hospital. But sitting in a room like that in a psychiatric ward in a basement, looking at all these strangers, every single one so in pain for different reasons. I was in general psych, so addiction, bipolar, eating disorder, whatever, schizophrenia, everything. And having the nerve to have thought I never should have been in a place like this. I don't belong in a place like that. What made me ever think that? Of course, we, we're humans. Of course, we belong in places like hospitals. That's where we go when we're sick. It was just like a wake-up call for me. And to be a mum now of a five-year-old who's now already getting those ideas of what anxiety might be or, you know, days where you feel left out or whatever. And having gone through what I've gone through, I'm such a better mum because of it. But it was... It was scary. It was a long way. I remember one of the doctors saying to me, uh, the only path out of hell is through misery or the only way out of misery is through the path of hell. One of them. And I was like, because <laughs> I was already on my hands and knees at this point and I was looking for a way out. And I was like, that really is the only way is to go through it. So, yeah. Did did you have any idea how long you was going to be in there? Did they give you an indication or? So now this is funny now talking about it because my psychosis kind of got me out of the hospital because I, I wasn't well I was still wasn't recovered but I had a, a thread going on in my mind a narrative that Hugo and his family were going to steal my son and it was a custody battle and I had to do everything really really well required of me of the hospital and be like an a-grade student that would get me out and then I'd be able to win my son back so I basically went to every single you know got up every day at 6am did my journal ate my breakfast went to course all day long ticked every single box, did my homework, took my medication. But there was a definitely an alternative motive in my mind being like, just do this and then you'll get out. So I came out too soon. I really did. I should have probably been in there for long and then longer. But um, I, I'm not just saying this. I don't mean it in a cheesy way and because it's my job, but books really helped save my life. And I'm t- I mean books on any story of recovery from, you know, mental illness to physical, whatever, just anything anyone that had gone through something hard and come out the other side listening to desert island discs people that are now on tv that have gone through awful stuff just knowing that this was part of the human condition that that really helped me therapy medication um and writing my own experience all saved me and also seeing my little boy grow you know just seeing him it's really hard to go through that and then you're looking at this baby that's just screaming in your face who's giving you nothing back thinking what what sorry what am I doing this for but then seeing him smile and engage you know his first word was mama 
when and, and knowing that it was me he wanted when he cried that was like okay this is for something I'm sure there's so many people listening to your story that are really touched by that and I you know I always getting goosebumps I've spent time in psychiatric wards not as a patient but I've worked in them uh, and I've seen that so there's some real characters in there that actually are really warm to you know like a bit like um, watching one flew over the cuckoo's nest there were certain characters in that film that you couldn't help having empathy and compassion for you know but they kind of like being in there as well there was this guy that always put on a bow tie and catching flies and there weren't any there you know like it, it it was endearing in some but I could see the pain in others and it was really moving my experience was you know that films like that my experience was not like that so that I feel like we haven't really had an accurate portrayal of what it is truly like to be in a ward because going especially visiting back I wasn't you know as well as I am now but I was pretty well I was 70% on the recovery journey and I went back and it was it, I could only liken it to being at the post office or being in a supermarket it's just quite quiet it's quiet it's people that just know that they not all of them are aware but we know that we're there because we're sick and and it isn't this like banging your head against a wall yeah. wiping your poo all over the walls and these kind of insidious versions which are not helping the stigma around mental illness it's actually people need to understand that going to hospital is not what am I going to go into I'm never going to come out it's okay to just go there and and Rock, the rock bottom spot there's something about rock bottom which is actually brings great pride and relief because you have got as bad as it can get but the only way is up yeah so, well I, I know about that you know and, and there's people in the addiction world that can relate to that but not everyone you know I work with grey area drinkers and quite often they don't reach a rock bottom but they're heading that way and they're lucky enough to nip it in the bud before that so when you came out how was it for Hugo, like, managing this? He was so quiet through so much of it. But, I mean, I'm sure he won't mind me saying because he is public about it. Hugo lost his mum when he was 15 years old. I was around at that time and went to the funeral with him. And uh, she was sick for a long time. And I think he has an incredible tolerance for pain and BS as well. He's just like, he can cope in situations of crisis far better than I ever could and he was able to just go okay this is not ideal but this is the place we're in right now he's such an amazing dad we're talking about this whole rock star you know idea of what that looks like his like bag where that used to be full of probably beers and wires and plectrums and he has baby milk in it now and muzzies and nappies and I mean for a while that was really hard for me to see him doing that because that was definitely the area that I wanted to I've always I write children's books for god's sake like I've always been a nanny I'm a proud big sister and letting him do that was really difficult for me the only way to describe it really is heroic he and I think if we didn't have all those years you know we've been best mates for over 20 years If, if we didn't have all that history and he knew when people would go the doctor would be like she seems fine it's those tiny flickers of the eye. Partners don't realise how incredible they are when someone's sick because they know all those tiny nuances where mental illness can lie and put on masks, as you know, so can addiction. They know those tiny moments where someone's not actually okay, you know, and um, he's just so patient and he's so 
I, I think I kept wanting forgiveness from him to be forgiven and to be relieved. And he was like, he was just like, there's nothing to forgive. You know, you've done nothing wrong. It would be like, he, he actually said it, I put it in the book, but he said, um, it would be like my mom asking to get MS. That would be like what it would be like. It'd be like you asking to have this. Why would you ask? Oh, he's a wonderful man. He really is. He's incredible. Yeah. And, and, and as a three now, we're just such a unit. You know, our mm. son still sleeps in the bed with us in the middle every single night at his five. And but we're just a complete trio, so I'm so grateful. That's beautiful. So when you came out and uh, you started to feel a bit better, what point did you start to look at your relationship with alcohol? Okay, so I had an amazing psychiatrist, doctor, who sadly has died now. He passed, and um. I can't tell you, it felt like every single person that helped me through this illness seems to have been like a a character from a children's book in themselves. And I thought, why have I got the, a team like this? But (laughs) he was almost like a kind of ringmaster from a circus with like a jacket that like drapes the ground. And, um, I just said to him, I can't sleep. I'm struggling to sleep and all the rest of it. I don't like taking sleeping tablets. I don't even like taking paracetamol you know so then suddenly taking all these tablets medication not only for the birth but also for my illness it was overwhelming and I really hated it I felt alien and one of those things I'm sure you've come across this the real way that you heal is to accept and to accept you need to take medication so just shut and take the medication yeah yeah at this point I was not happy about it and he just said okay why don't you just try like a little nip of whiskey or something like that he said and he didn't mean it he wasn't prescribing it. He was like, you know, just try, it's relax. You've got, you've got anxiety and you need to try and relax. You know, you just want to be normal. That's what you'd say, you know, normal. You just want to be normal. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, and, and all around me, my friends were having a few glasses of wine to drink. And I thought, we all know people that drink a little bit too much. We don't, in my opinion, at this time in my life, I do now. I didn't know people that were taking maximum dose of antipsychotics, antidepressants, and two different types of sleeping tablet like whilst having a newborn so that just Mm. felt oh maybe I'll do that and um of course it wasn't doing anything the alcohol really because I was so anxious that it was burning off so I would just drink more and that went on for a while of um basically surrounding by surrounding sleep I was obsessed with sleep because insomnia was one of the main symptoms of my illness and I wasn't happy at all looking back you know um antipsychotics don't make you feel brilliant you feel kind of catatonic and lethargic and they my self-esteem was all over my confidence was shot so I guess a drinking as well was associated with being fun and having a good time and I was like if I'm seen with a drink in my hand I'm back to normal if I've got like a twirly cocktail with a big orange sticking out the side a sangria I'm back to normal um and so the knocking it on the head was something I knew I had to do, but I was worried that that would still make me look ill. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I was still a kind of precious thing that couldn't, I was on, I was, she's on so much medication. She's been through so much that if she has a drink, it will just tip her over the edge. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to look like, no, I can eat cheeseburgers and drink beer and go to gigs. And so um, that was a part of that. So that was like nearly three years ago now. And how did you manage it? Did you just stop? Did you reduce? I, I tried a few times and then I would go. It, it would be funny. I'm sure you've experienced this. You know, you, you stop and then you see a friend that you haven't had a drink. You're like, oh, but I haven't shown them I'm normal yet. I haven't like had a heart to heart with them yet. And yeah. I was conscious that 
having a baby anyway and then being as ill as I was. There was a good year where I was out of my friends' lives and I wanted to listen to them and see what had been going on in their lives and be present and have catch up like properly like we used to. I'm, I'm, I love food as well and going out and drinking. And the, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but my eyes, I have been woken up with about the whole alcohol industry with the food industry. I'm just so grossed out by it. And at that time, I was still under that spell that, oh, this wine goes with this, romanticizing that you need this with this and this with this. And now I'm just like out of that, out of that spell. But that, that time I, I felt like I should and had to. So it took a few goes. I got an app called I'm Sober. Is it yeah. I think I'm on that one, but I never look at it. But I think... Oh, my God, I look at it all the time. How, how far along the line are you? Nearly three years. Oh, brilliant. Sometimes I go back. The thing I sometimes do is look at other people. You can look at all the different days, and I see the day zero people, and yeah. one, and I just, my heart just bleeds. I feel so... Oh, I just connect feel connected to those people but very quickly I have to scramble out I'm like get out get out get out of that chat room so yeah a couple of times before I actually did and obviously probably like many people you've spoken to I had to lie at first I was like oh, I'm just doing it to support Hugo because he quit smoking at the same time so I was like oh and then I just like I'm feeling really feeling this yeah. I'm enjoying this it's like no it was my intention but I had to get through that first bit I always say to people you have to work it out your your way right whether it's I'm on antibiotics or whether I'm having a health kick or I'm just going to try it for a couple of weeks see how I feel and then after a couple of weeks you can say do you know what? I'm sleeping better. My anxiety is less, so I'm going to carry on kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And then just... You need a little white lie, I think. You do. Uh, and I don't mind encouraging that sometimes. So That's good. Well, it's like a white lie, isn't it, to be very honest to yourself? It's a white lie to others. It's to a be- coping mechanism. Do you know what I mean? Because it's uh, we, we've said it before, it's the only drug you have to justify giving up, which is insane. But more and more people are doing it now and coming out and being an example. And then, like, I bet a couple of your friends afterwards said, oh, what is it like then? Like, they, yeah. they start getting inquisitive, don't they? Well, this is it. I've got two friends, Lauren and Sam, and they're both my heroes. And they're, they're people I think of as always on the dance floor, partying, singing, doing all the rest of it. And they're both just ahead of me by a little bit, one month or a day, one a month and one a day. And I think if they can do this and they're the most, they're the life and soul of the party and they just keep me bubbling, like, I'm like, look at them and... We've got like, we're bound in that way. You know, I always look across the room. We, we message at Christmas. I'm like, oh God, look at mum's trolley. It's like glistening rosé. And it's so worth it, you know, with that next day when you, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's funny we've done this podcast now. I found it a bit hard. The festival series season kicking off. Frozen margaritas seem to be everywhere. I'm not even interested in frozen. I bought a nice lolly yesterday because I just felt this like, where it's, it's, come up out of absolutely nowhere that I feel that kind of desire but then always in it, it passes doesn't it it just passes you just got to get through the it passes and the longer you go the more you deal with it so I've worked out on my I am sober app that I'm four years and five months today right today congratulations it, that's huge yeah that's huge um but I still get random weird things come in and I don't know where they even come from but it's almost like Oh, you're back again, are you? Well, you know where you can go. Yeah. You know, I, I, I lo- I've learned a coping strategy to talk it like a stalker or something. Yeah. Like, oh, you popped up again, you ugly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it works for me, you know. 
Um, because I, I know, and people say you can never say you never drink again, but I've been through a lot and, and there've been many occasions that could easily have gone, nah, I can't do this, but it means so much to me because I mean so much to me now. And that's the difference where I didn't mean anything to me before, you know, Uh, and there's the big difference. And when you talk about suicidal thoughts, I was like, feeling really emotional then because I remember a time that if I'd have found the tablets, I wouldn't be here now. Uh, And I was drunk, but it was like, I'm better off without me and so is everyone else. I'm worth literally nothing. I don't deserve to live this life and I'm going to end it. And I woke up face down in my coat the next morning um, and I, I was like, oh my God, I would have literally done it and i still carried on drinking after that and there there were several rock bottoms that weren't enough but each time it planted something in my head that was like jesus mate you you've got a life here worth living and since i've stopped drinking i've lived a hell of a life you know a wonderful life but i've also learned to accept that i am a good person a good human being where before I just thought I was a waste of space, you know, and that's one of the biggest gifts that I've got from my sobriety. And I encourage people that when they feel like they've got low self-esteem, lack of self-worth, that they're not enough, the first thing to look at is their drinking. Totally. That that first morning where I woke up in the psychiatric ward and they finally medicated me because I was just given over the counter sort of prescription uh, sleeping tablets up until that point I hadn't slept a good night in five weeks and had been manic for one of them just literally not slept I don't think for eight days up until this point and waking up on my first day after being properly medicated the only thing I can liken it to was like the worst hangover you've ever had where I felt like I needed to apologize to the entire universe mm. grovel on my hands and knees and there's a little person watching me at the door that had watched me sleep the whole night. Someone had had to physically watch me sleep. That's how in danger I was to my own self. And they bought me breakfast. Someone had bought me breakfast in and I was just on my, I could only crawl. I just remember crawling in the duvet. Like this kind of, it, the, the um, parallels between an awful hangover and waking up after a psychotic episode are very, very close. And why on earth would I ever want to get close to those waters ever again? I just never want that again. And there's days where I beat myself up. Of course, I'm human or have crap days or whatever. And just knowing that I didn't drink, if I didn't exercise or I didn't send something off or whatever, shout, you know, had a little thing with my son or whatever it is, just knowing I've got that is such a like jewel to hold on to at the end of the day, a precious jewel. That alone sometimes can send me to sleep. That fixes my insomnia, that alone, that comfort. Yeah. absolutely so since getting sober how's life changed for you because you're an incredible author and you've written some amazing books how is it now for you life pretty sweet actually i'm glad to be alive that's the great thing about surviving suicide isn't it is you've kind of got this like free passport like to just be like today's great any nothing happens and um there's beauty in the mundanity of the everyday and i feel grateful to that and um I mean, I never even thought I'd be able to take my son to the playground. I really didn't ever think I'd do that. I'd never thought I'd be in the supermarket able to make my own decisions. I had this vision of myself living in my mum's 
top bedroom, you know, with bars on the window, seeing my son once a week. And to being able to write again and trust my imagination is just incredible. So they're all celebratory days. But the way that sobriety, I went, I went to Disney World last Disneyland LA last summer. Oh my God, have you been? No. I was, and because I was with Hugo, and obviously we've been friends since we were kids, I was wearing a Nirvana t shirt. I had no makeup on. And I was like, I have not felt like a child so purely since I was that age again, even before that, because I was a grandchild, obviously. And I was, but like laughing my head off on rides. When it was time to go home, I was crying, like just having the most euphoric day. And there are people queuing up with pints. And I said to Hugo, that would have been me in the queue to kill time. It's so hot as well. I would have been there like with pints. I just fueled that day on like fizzy drinks, like sugar, like just candy and just like rah, on these rides and just had the greatest day. And it's being able to um, have incredible conversations and be present being able to see things through a child's like eyes, basically being on the same page as my son when we experienced for the first time. I'm so grateful for those moments. Yeah, uh, I, I can feel that. And also when you're drinking, you escape everyone, don't you? You just go off on a tangent. So you wouldn't oh, have felt you any hang of that. Out with people that you only hang out with because they're drinking as well. Yeah, yeah. You get talking to a stranger in a pub. It's like, no, I, I haven't got time for that now. I just want to talk to the people I love and care about and listen to them. So um, my relationships are so much stronger. I, I feel like my core group of friends is tighter. We talk about everything, you know, if anything. There's no taboo subject. I feel like my friends could say if they were feeling really bad. I know that we could talk about that now. I couldn't have been that person before. Um, so everything, I, I read a book properly. You know, when you're drunk, read on the tube and you've got a book and you're drunk and you're like thinking you're reading, you're not reading or watching a film, you know. It's, I just feel like I've got more time. It's actually the time more than the money that I appreciate how much I've saved. That's what I like looking at on the app. Yeah, I agree. And I always say drinking robs your you of your life. You know, like the amount of times that I don't remember the night before or I've watched a film and I remember the first 10 minutes and I'm up at five o'clock rewinding it to that bit so I know what I'm talking about. And the only thing is now... Laura's, I can't read a book because I think I've got some form of ADHD or something because I read a couple of sentences and I don't know what I've read. So I bought a Kindle. Love Kindle. So yeah, good. and I'm trying to get used to that, but I think I'm an audio book man. And that, that's, so, that's so great. Yeah, but so many people have approached me to record my audio book because I've got it on Kindle and I've got it out in print. But there's a lot of people that say the same. I just can't concentrate. And I think there's a huge thing these days of this low attention span going on, you know, instant gratification, this eight, nine second thing that we go scroll, 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 scroll. And so I'm in the process of looking at that as well. But yeah, definitely audio. So moving on before we go, because I know you've got things to do, but do you want to just briefly tell us about your wonderful new book that's oh, coming out? Oh, thank you. Yeah, so um, after the experience, uh, after the experience of being so well unwell, I wrote about it in a book called What Have I Done? Which, as I said, I never thought I'd be in my imagination again because it had betrayed me so badly. Which is a strange thing when you're up until that point. My imagination was always my kryptonite, you know, my best friend, and then my brain was just so. My memoir. I wrote it all on my phone and I honestly think that writing that book saved my life. Um, and then I, it clocked. I was like, I've got an opportunity here where I write for young people to encourage young people to write about 
difficult or anything to journal but we've all got this incredible skill at the end of our fingertips right there available to us which is pretty much pen and paper cheap I mean I wrote it on my phone as I said so writing is still recording your voice is conversation it could be through a song it could be through poetry but the importance of writing and nobody had ever taught me about mental health properly I know they are doing it better at schools now but certainly not mental illness and certainly not the tools to get better I had stigma around medication. Uh, my only versions of what a psychiatric ward looked like, as you said, were in horror films or mm. thrillers. It wasn't an accurate representation. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't have the language to describe. I didn't know what a delusion was or true paranoia was. Um, so I basically have created a, a writing guide for young people, for everybody but for young people, called You're a Story, which is about encouraging everybody but young people mainly, especially, you know, just tapping into what you've just said, the attention span thing, but how much young people have gone through, especially with COVID, cost of living, Ukraine, BLM. It's like kids look to us for support and guidance and they've seen us terrified or us not able to find the language to describe what is going on right now. So kids have just been through so much. Um, this is a chance for them to, to put pen to paper. That's wonderful, Laura. Um, I'm going to put all of your links in the show notes. So if people want to buy your books or find you and listen to your story as well, they can find you on there. I'm so grateful for this interview today. Thanks for being so transparent. Oh, thanks, Dave. It's lovely meeting you. Thank you. And you too. Take it easy. Take care. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon. And you can also follow me on Instagram, at SoberDave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.